2: Welcome to episode 86 of the Criminology Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson.
1: And this is Mike Morford.
2: Mr. Morford, how are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing excellent. And I am excited to record another episode. I always get jazzed during the recording process. That's the the kind of the fun part for you
1: and I. Yeah, we really touch on some some different kinds of cases that It's it's always fun to dive into them and see if we can figure out what's going on with them. Got a lot of great
2: feedback from our Halloween episode, the two axe murders. Those are pretty well-known unsolved cases, especially when you're talking about big-time family massacre axe murders and the somewhat paranormal activity that goes along with each of them. They're both very interesting cases, but both very well-known.
1: Yeah, I think they were the perfect cases to do for our Halloween episode. They had some just the right mix of of mystery, but some of the bizarre ghost-like stuff, too, going on. So, interesting cases.
2: So, before we get into this case, we had some new Patreon supporters. So, let's give our shout-outs. We had Elizabeth Wunsch, George Blaskowski, Amy Greger, Dreama Hazelwood, Douglas Lofride, and Lisa. So... As always, we appreciate that new support very much.
1: As we go forward, it always helps to have uh, that support coming in. So if you'd like to help support Criminology through Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com criminology.
2: And don't forget about Stitcher Premium. All of our episodes that are older than six months are out there on Stitcher Premium. Stitcher Premium is awesome. The amount of content on there will blow you away. They also have a free 30 day trial that a lot of people use to catch up on our older episodes, especially the Golden State Killer, Ted Bundy, and Zodiac. Those seasons are out there right now. All right, Morph, I think we need to dive into the Boca Raton mall murders. It was in 2007. That the senseless murders of a mother and her young daughter shocked the residents of Boca Raton, Florida. Nancy Bokikio and her seven-year-old daughter, Joey Bokikio Hauser, were abducted from the town center mall and found shot to death in Nancy's black SUV hours later in the mall's parking lot. The circumstances of their murders led police to believe that other similar cases may have been connected, but the killer or killers that struck at the Boca Raton Mall remain at large to this day. Journalist and author Kevin Deutsch has extensively investigated the Boca Raton Mall murders, and he joined us to help tell this story, and you'll hear from him throughout the episode.
1: The area of Boca Raton, Florida, where this case takes place, isn't the kind of area you'd expect such a crime spree. Located in Palm Beach County on the southeastern edge of Florida, this is a beautiful upscale neighborhood filled with golf courses and scenic parks and beaches. The crime rate in Boca Raton is low. So for someone like Nancy Bocchicchio, a transplant to the area from New York, she didn't think twice about going out and about with her young daughter, Joey.
2: Nancy Bocchicchio was born on August 21st, 1960, in the Bronx, New York, she was raised there. She married Philip Hauser, and they lived in the Bensonhurst area of Brooklyn. They also lived in Long Island. At the age of 39, Nancy gave birth to her first and only child, Joey Boquicchio Hauser, on December 17, 1999. Nancy's marriage to Philip Hauser lasted only a few years and the couple divorced in September of 2006. Nancy and Joey lived in a home on Buttonwood Lake Drive in Boca Raton, which is simply
1: referred to by many as Boca. Nancy was described by friends as being tough with a kind heart and a good spirit. In 2007, Nancy ran her own business as a stock analyst and worked hard to put Joey through St. Jude Catholic School in Boca. Joey was Nancy's life and Nancy was completely devoted to her daughter. The two were inseparable. Joey wasn't like the average seven-year-old. She was mature for her age and preferred clams, oysters, and mussels over chicken nuggets, hamburgers, and french fries. She was also sweet, happy, and mild-mannered. She loved karaoke and had a good sense of humor.
2: During the Christmas season of 2007, Nancy was planning Joey's upcoming eighth birthday party. This was set to occur on December 15th at their favorite restaurant, Cafe D'Angelo. An investor in the cafe, a man by the name of Timothy McCurdy, who was also Nancy's friend, was going to dress up as Santa Claus and surprise Joey with gifts. But Joey never got the chance to celebrate her
1: eighth birthday. On Wednesday, December 12th, 2007, Nancy picked Joey up early from school for a doctor's appointment. Then the two decided to do some Christmas shopping at Boca's Town Center Mall, an upscale mall with stores such as Saks Fifth Avenue, Cartier, and Louis Vuitton, to name a few. They entered the mall around 2 p.m. through Mall Entrance Number Four, between Neiman Marcus and Sears. Mom and daughter were seen on the Sony store surveillance video in the mall, and later exiting the mall from Entrance Number Four at 3:11 p.m. They were headed towards Nancy's black SUV a 2007 Chrysler Aspen. What happened after that is unknown because there were no security cameras in the parking lot at that time.
0: Nancy and Joey Bokiki were a uh, a young mother and her seven-year-old daughter. Uh, Nancy uh, was born in the Bronx. She was reared in the Bronx. Uh, she moved to South Florida to make a better life, uh, an easier life for her and her, her little girl. And uh, Nancy was, a was a, by all accounts, a really tough, street-smart, Intelligent, really kind uh, local girl from the Bronx, and she was really gifted in uh, with, in, um, in working in stocks and finance, and really anything she applied herself to she excelled in she worked with all these financial firms and she was doing that in Florida as well with Joey, who really excelled in school was a seven year old she was extremely bright they used to call her uh, the mayor of Boca because she was so she had just radiated personality and charm and um she had this uh, tremendous charisma, even for a seven-year-old. They called her the mayor of Boca, and she had, they even said she had a New York attitude. And so her favorite place to go was to the mall. And, so, and this is a very upscale shopping center where really Boca's rich and, and elite shop for, for all the upscale designers. And Nancy and Joey went there for Christmas shopping because the next day uh, Nancy was going to give – she wanted to find a gift for her friend's uh, daughter and Joey was also going to be performing in a school play the uh, the next night as a reindeer. And that little, the the gift was going to be given at the play where this woman was going to be as well. And so they went to the mall, uh, they did some shopping and, uh, uh, they were seen on surveillance video and they had, you know, when they walked in those doors, they were, they were on their way to amazing things in their life. They had a beautiful house in Boca. Joey had an incredibly bright future ahead of her. She could have pretty much did anything. She was a brilliant little girl and Nancy really had her stuff together. I mean, she was making money, she was successful, she was happy by all accounts, and everything was really beautiful for them, from family to financial life and uh, when they came out of that mall, uh, we know at some point they were they disappeared they were abducted by one or more uh ritualistic killers. Nancy was later found uh uh, ritualistically bound with zip ties at her ankles and, and wrists. And she had blacked out motorcycle goggles over her eyes. And both little girl and, and her mother had been shot in their heads and, and found inside their SUV just outside the mall, which sat there for hours before a security guard noticed it. And it was a really tragic end to two to remarkable lives that had come from New York to Florida to, to, and really succeeded in making a wonderful lives for, for a mother and daughter.
2: In that clip you just heard, Kevin lays out a bit of what happened to Nancy and Joey, but unfortunately, due to lack of eyewitnesses, due to the lack of surveillance, just exactly what happened after they got out of the mall isn't known. What is known is that at 3.14 p.m., Nancy attempted to call 911, but the call was disconnected before a dispatcher answered. When the dispatcher tried calling back, there was no answer. Around this same time, a friend of Nancy's named David Stewart, who had no idea what was happening at this time, called Nancy's cell phone. According to David, a man answered Nancy's phone speaking Spanish. When he heard David's voice, the man hung up video footage from a bank next to the mall showed Nancy making an ATM withdrawal of $500. And you know, those ATM videos, kind of a fisheye type lens. The video only picked up Nancy. So we don't know exactly who, if anybody else was in the car, Joey, another strange man. We don't know.
1: About nine hours later, Just after midnight on December 13th, a mall security officer was patrolling the parking lot when he noticed a black SUV parked with its engine still running. He looked inside and saw two people, a woman and a young girl that he thought may be sleeping, but he felt something was off and called police. Police never revealed the name of the security guard, and today Kevin Deutsch is seeking the identity of that guard so he can talk with him as he may have additional information. Boca police arrived at the mall and approached the vehicle. When they took a closer look, they discovered that the people inside weren't asleep. They were dead. Both victims had been shot to death. The bodies were identified as Nancy and Joey Bochicchio.
2: According to the Boca police, the suspect or suspects used a variety of material to bind and control Joey and Nancy. This included duct tape, plastic ties, handcuffs, and goggles. Their hands, feet, and neck were bound to restrict their movement inside the vehicle. When they were discovered, the bindings on Nancy's wrists were broken. Both Nancy and Joey were wearing yellow swimming or diving goggles. The inside of the goggles lenses were lined with some sort of sponge-like padding, essentially to black them out, to make it so that the victims were unable to see. Police released an image of the goggles and they sought the public's help in identifying these type of goggles. They also asked if anyone possibly knew someone who owned a pair like them. Detectives don't know if Nancy and Joey were shot in the mall parking lot or somewhere else. They also have no idea when Nancy's SUV was returned to the parking lot but they believe it was there for a number of hours before the security guard found it. This was during the Christmas season, so there were thousands of visitors shopping at Town Center Mall on
1: a daily basis, but no one reported seeing anything. Boca police thought that an abduction and killing in March 2007 and a kidnapping robbery a few months later in August were likely connected to the Boquicchio murders. All three of these cases shared some strong similarities. On March 23, 2007, 52-year-old Randy Gorenberg went shopping at the Town Center Mall, the same mall as Nancy and Joey Bukikio, to buy a John Legend CD. She was seen on surveillance video leaving the mall at 1:15 p.m. She stopped briefly to check voicemail on her cell phone before heading to her black Mercedes SUV. Randy
0: Gorenberg was the first known victim of the Boca Mall Killer or Killers. She was, uh, last seen shopping at the mall, uh, on March 23rd, 2007. She had watched the today show that morning at her upscale home in Boca Raton. From what we know from, from police, as well as from documents and her surviving relatives, she had heard, uh, John legend performing that morning on television. And she liked his album so much that she went to the mall that, uh, later that morning and into the early afternoon to, buy his new cd so she went to the mall she bought uh his cd at the fye store which was a cd music store and video store at the mall at the time and she also went shopping at old navy and she's seen on surveillance video doing all this and she spends you know some some time in the mall then she exits and she's last seen uh exiting through a camera uh, that is stationed at one of the mall exits and because there are no other additional cameras in the mall parking lot. That's the last trace we have of her until uh, less than an hour later when witnesses at a nearby uh, park in, uh, in Delray beach, which is just outside Boca uh, see a luxury, her luxury SUV peeling out of this park and they hear a gunshot and they hear, they see Randy being dumped out of the car uh, with a gunshot wound, a fatal gunshot wound. And and her killer escapes in her car um, he ditches it at a Home Depot, and he to this day has not been located. Uh, Randy was a mother of two, a wife of uh, Mister Stuart Gornberg, who was a very successful chiropractor in the Boca Raton area at the time, uh, and uh, had a, by all accounts, a, a sort of fairy tale life. She was born in Brooklyn, grew up in in, in uh, New York City, moved to Florida, had this uh, wonderful affluent life.
2: 39 minutes later, after Randy exited the mall, someone placed a 911 call saying that they heard two gunshots and witnessed a woman fall out of a black SUV in Governor Lawton Childs Memorial Park in Delray Beach. This is about five and a half miles north of the Boca Town Center Mall. The witness told the dispatcher that the woman was dead. That woman turned out to be Randy Gorenberg. Her SUV was found minutes later, abandoned behind a Home Depot near the park. Her purse and cell phone were missing, as was her black and white Puma shoes. Those items have never been found. The security cameras at the Home Depot captured someone driving the SUV in the parking lot, followed by a white Chrysler 300. No one saw the killer, and he was not captured on the Home Depot cameras.
1: Police believe Randy was abducted in the mall parking lot and that she attempted to escape by jumping from the moving vehicle, which is why she was shot to death. But what happened between the mall and the park is unknown. Randy's murder devastated her family, and like Nancy Bochicchio, she was originally from New York. Randy was born in Brooklyn and married Stuart Gorenberg in 1979. The couple had two children together in the 80s Daniel and Suri. Stewart was a chiropractor and relocated his practice to the Oceanside community of Boca. He had a successful practice, and the family lived in a $2 million home in the upscale community of Bonniela Acres.
2: Randy was a devoted mother who also spent time volunteering in Boca. After her father passed away, Randy's mother, Idy Elias, remarried and moved to Florida to be closer to her daughter. And the two did become very close. If they weren't together, they were chatting on the phone. The last time that ID spoke with Randy was on the evening of March 22nd, 2007, the night before Randy's murder. Two hours after the murder, detectives spotted Randy's son, Daniel Gorenberg, who at the time was 25 years old. They said that he was behaving strangely. They observed Daniel driving his Volkswagen car at a high rate of speed into the Gornberg's garage. He opened the trunk, took out a spray bottle and a roll of paper towels. He was also seen pacing in the family driveway while talking on his cell phone and smoking a cigarette. Daniel's odd behavior seemed suspicious to detectives who had not yet told him about his mother's death.
1: When detectives did speak with Daniel and told him about his mom's murder, they asked him about his whereabouts at the time of Randy's murder. Daniel said that he was working, but when police tried verifying it with his employer, the investigators were told that Daniel had not been working at that time. Detectives asked Daniel to turn in the clothes he was wearing that day so they could examine them, but he gave them the wrong set of clothes, which made him look even more suspicious to police.
2: And apparently police weren't just watching Randy's son. They were also suspicious of her husband, Stuart, after they told him of his wife's murder. A captain from the Palm Beach County Homicide Unit told NBC's Dateline in 2009, quote, it was just not your typical response that you would see from family members when their spouses or kids have been killed or murdered. Just days after the murder, Daniel and Stuart both lawyered up. And both men stopped talking directly to police. Their legal representation insisted that neither man had anything to do with Randy's murder. Randy's mother, Idy, and her daughter, Sari, called a news conference asking for the public's health. What a lot of people found strange was the fact that neither Stewart or Daniel attended the press conference. So detectives continued to look into both father and son, and this included looking into Stewart's finances, the Gorenberg's home life and Daniel's emotional history, but they found nothing. To get almost anything delivered, must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets.
1: A few months later, in August 2007, Daniel was arrested for trying to illegally buy prescription drugs. He was sentenced to three years of drug offender probation and was required to enroll in a residential drug treatment program in Ocala. According to his lawyer, Daniel suffered from a drug addiction that worsened after his mother's murder. One source said the charges were dropped as part of an agreement with prosecutors and the court system. In 2008, Stuart Gornberg was arrested. The Florida Department of Financial Services accused Stuart's practice of billing private insurance twice for patients who weren't seen on the days they were billed for. Those charges were later dropped. Despite all of their suspicious behavior, both Daniel and Stuart were never officially suspects in Randy's death.
0: A lot of really... Uh, salacious things started to come out about her family life after she was killed tragically when 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 reporters and police started digging into to her life uh, suspicion was cast on her uh, husband who police said had been frequenting prostitutes before and after her murder suspicion was also cast on her son who was arrested for uh, trying to fulfill a uh, fraudulent drug prescription allegedly a uh, charge that was later tossed out her husband was also charged with uh insurance fraud, another charge that was later tossed out, it seemed this was happening uh, as part of a, a law enforcement campaign to put pressure on them because they, from all accounts in the court records, they, they honed in on both of them and thought they might have had something to do with the crime. But uh, as they've said, they have never, uh, they, they they don't have evidence physically linking uh, her husband to the crime, and they don't have physical evidence excluding him from the crime, as they've said. So uh, he has not been ruled out to this day, nor have anybody else who they've looked at, and they've They've tested many, many DNA samples taken from people who knew the family, who had connections to the Gorenbergs, Uh, and to this day, they have not gotten a DNA hit, uh, even with all the advances in DNA technology.
2: A few months after Randy Gorenberg's murder, a similar crime took place.
0: On August 7th, so this was just uh, a few months after Randy Gorenberg's death, a young mother uh, and her two year old son were exiting the mall after an afternoon of shopping same as uh, m o is the gornberg case getting in their s u v uh and the young mother when she when she closes, she puts the, her baby in the back seat and puts some bags in the back of the s u v and and everything's fine and then when she actually gets into the car and starts it, she sees in her in the back seat that the killer is sitting there with his gun next to her uh her little boy. And he had uh, obviously moved quite stealthily. He makes her drive around, uh, withdraw some money from an ATM. He later ritualistically binds her with the goggles, zip ties. He's got his holster. He's got his gloves. He's very calm, according to her testimony.
2: On Tuesday, August 7th, 2007, a woman known only as Jane Doe, who was 30 years old at the time, and her two-year-old son were shopping at the Town Center Mall. They parked near Nordstrom on the Southeast side of the mall. After they finished their shopping, they walked to their vehicle, a black Lincoln Navigator. Jane strapped her son into his car seat, and then she went to the back of the vehicle to put the stroller in. She then started walking to the front. She heard her son whimper, mama, mama, and knew something was wrong because he sounded alarmed. He sounded scared. When she looked into the vehicle, a man with a gun was sitting next to her son and told her twice to get into the vehicle. The man wore wraparound sunglasses and a large floppy hat. He then ordered her to drive to the nearest drive through ATM and take out $200. He then did the exact same thing at two other banks. When she attempted to draw $800 at another ATM, it declined, saying she had reached her maximum
1: daily amount. Fearing the man would now kill her, the woman pleaded for her life. The man told her, just do what I say, and I'll take you back to the mall. He then told her to pull into the midday traffic. The woman's son had fallen asleep in his car seat due to the moving vehicle. The vehicle's windows were tinted, so no one could see what was happening to Jane Doe and her son. Jane continued begging him not to kill her, or her son. And the man said to her, I'm not going to. I don't need any more problems than I already have. Or any more trouble than I'm already in.
2: The man pulled into a hotel parking lot and told this woman to swap seats with him so that he could get into the driver's seat. Jane jumped into the back seat with her son. He pulled out a pair of cheap handcuffs and handcuffed the woman's hands behind her back. He then zip tied her ankles together and zip tied her neck to the seat's headrest. The man took out a pair of darkened, sunglasses with what this woman thought was duct tape over the inside of the lenses. He put them over her eyes. So essentially she was blindfolded. She could see just a tiny bit. The zip tie around her neck was very tight and she was practically choking. She was crying hysterically. So the man loosened the zip tie and he asked her, is that better? And
1: she said it was. The attacker then started driving into traffic, but stopped again. He reached into a plastic bag, pulled out a knife, and cut the zip tie off Jane's neck. Then he started driving again. He mistakenly drove onto the Florida Turnpike, which made him angry. Jane had the impression that the man was not familiar with the area's roads. The man did a U-turn, and as he did, Jane's son's bottle fell and landed under the driver's seat. The boy started crying. So the man reached down and grabbed the bottle from under the car seat and gave it to the little boy, and he stopped crying.
2: All of this transpired over a couple of hours. When the SUV came to a stop, they were back at the town center mall. The SUV was still running. The man zip-tied Jane's neck to the headrest again and told her that he would let her call someone. She was to tell this person that her truck had broken down, And that she needed this person to come get her. Jane called her son's father and told him exactly what the man had told her to say. When she hung up the phone, the man told her, When the police come, I want you to tell them that I'm short, fat, and black. He then took the sunglasses off the woman and replaced them with a pair of goggles that were completely blacked out. So this time she couldn't see anything. The man told her that if he saw his face or picture or even a description on the news, he'd come after her. Jane heard the SUV door slam shut and the man was gone. So, obviously, Morph, this whole event is very scary for this woman. But I want to touch on this very last part. This unknown man who, through a variety of ways, could have learned her identity that probably would not have been very hard tells her if I hear anything or see anything about me on television, I'm going to come after you. How scary would that be on top of this horrific event you've already gone
1: through? Yeah, I'd, I'd be afraid. And I, I can't blame her at all for being listed as Jane Doe in all these articles.
2: Yeah. I think that's the the big reason right? For the Jane Doe. Now, initially I thought Jane Doe was strange. Normally you hear the term Jane Doe referring to a body of a woman that is unknown. In this case, the media chose to call her Jane Doe. We know there's lasting effects for victims who survive these type of encounters. I think adding to what a victim would experience is the fact that you have to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life, not knowing whether or not this individual knows who you are, knows where you live, and is going to come back to get you at some point. That is a very scary thought.
1: And a little bit later in the episode, Kevin's going to share with us a little bit about that fear that some of these victims and their families experienced following these attacks. Jane decided that she wasn't going to wait for her son's father to get to the mall, so she took action and freed herself. She hopped into the driver's seat and drove to the mall's valet parking stand and told the valet to call the police because she had just been kidnapped. Jane believes that she was not killed because she did everything the man wanted her to do. She didn't resist or fight back in any way because she was protecting her son. Boca police arrived and took her and her son to the police station, Jane gave her story to police and was shocked when they didn't believe her and they accused her of lying. They thought the story sounded far-fetched and didn't think she could have freed herself from the handcuffs the way she did. Another reason they didn't believe her was because the SunPass electronic device on her windshield didn't record her entering the Florida Turnpike, which is a toll road. So Morph, as you're talking
2: about the police not believing this woman, it made me think of the Netflix show, Unbelievable. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, that was amazing and infuriating at, at the same time.
2: Yeah, I thought it was very well done. I especially like the two female leads, the detectives. I thought they were great characters. They were strong, but you're right. That show was infuriating. I sat there, ticked off the entire time because- Just very much like in this case, the police did not believe the woman who said she was raped. Man, that show, as good as it was, it really ticked me off.
1: Yeah. If you go through something like this, this horrible experience, and you go to the people that are supposed to help you and protect you, and you get a response like, we don't believe you, I I can't even imagine how hard that is for a victim to experience. It's essentially being victimized
2: twice right? You were victimized by your attacker, your rapist, whatever you went through. And then you're a victim again, because you go to the proper channels and they don't believe
1: you. Terrible feeling. I must imagine. And in Jane Doe's case, police went so far as to ask her to take a polygraph test. And she did so willingly.
0: I interviewed this woman uh, at the the time in in, uh, 2008. Uh, I sat down with her uh, along with my colleague, Mr. Laforgia, and she, uh, she was uh, essentially emotionally broken. She says by what happened to her. She says she, she basically thinks about the the abduction every night. She believes that uh, he meant to kill her and wanted to kill her, and somehow he took pity on her. She was a uh, former model and a, a Hooters waitress and a very charismatic and beautiful woman. Like this little boy was a mother just trying to protect her son, and, and I think she thinks that, that she connected with him somehow, and, and he, he didn't kill her. And he didn't kill the little boy, and he ended up dropping them off back at the mall, still bound, and uh, zip-tied in their car, where a parking... Finally, the, the young mother broke free. Police eventually arrived, uh, and they initially disbelieved her story. Uh, they had her take a polygraph. They said her toll records from her sunbass didn't sync up on the Florida highway system. Eventually, it turned out that that was a SunPass uh, malfunction, and she wasn't lying. She was completely telling the truth. They didn't fully come around to believing her until December 2007, when the Kikios were found murdered, and some of those same ritualistic items from the zip ties of the goggles were found at the scene. At the time, detectives realized, okay, uh, this woman was completely telling us the truth, and now we've got to catch this guy.
2: Boca police classified Jane Doe's horrific counter as quote, an alleged abduction and no one in Boca heard anything about it. So fast forward to November, 2007, a detective from Palm Beach County Sheriff's office called Jane asking for her help. He wanted to see if Randy Gorenberg's abduction and murder was related in some way to Jane's kidnapping. Both women had been at the town center mall before their abduction and both women drove large black SUVs. The detectives brought Jane into the station and they had her work with a sketch artist to create a composite sketch of her abductor, but the artist didn't get it completely right. And Jane felt that when it was finished, it was not quite accurate. So even though there were similarities between the Gornberg case and Jane does case, there were some notable differences as well. Randy was not restrained the way that Jane Doe was, nor was she made to withdraw money from an ATM machine. The reason for the latter could be because Randy did not carry an ATM card.
1: After Nancy and Joey were murdered, police knew that whoever abducted and murdered them was the same person who abducted Jane Doe and her son and possibly was responsible for Randy Gorenberg's murder as well. The August and December cases were identical, with the exception that Jane and her son survived. Police believe Nancy fought back, and that's why she and Joey were killed. After the murders, the Boca Raton Police Department and the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office formed the task force. They had nine detectives assigned to the case. They believe that the killer chose them all as the abduction point because he was familiar with it. Some questions they asked themselves were, did he work at the mall? And did he know that there were no security cameras in the parking lot? They also wondered if he chose his victims at random. And in all these cases that are possibly connected, the victims drove large, dark-colored SUVs. So might they have been targeted based on their vehicles?
0: There have been some egos uh, 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 issues in this investigation. Um, The three agencies involved, the FBI, the Boca Raton, Police department and the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office initially formed a joint task force to uh, investigate this case together, and that that task that task force very quickly uh, fell apart, and we don't know what was going on behind closed doors, but we know that they sort of stopped working together after a brief time. Uh, investigators have been very close with about uh, the interaction between the agencies, about how they are currently or working or not working together. I do know that, that, that all have, have clarified their jurisdiction. And so whenever, as a reporter, uh, I've tried to uh, sort of bring to uh, talk to them about similarities between the cases, they've sort of very been in their lane, you know, sort of stay in your lane. We have this case, they have that case. And that's sort of surprising considering the commonalities and the fact that Behind closed doors and depositions, detectives have spoken about the commonalities and never ruled out the possibility that the Gorenberg and Bochicchio murders are linked. And we know that the, the, that the Bochicchio murders are linked uh, forensically to the August 7th murders and possibly to the Meisner Park uh, robbery as well. So um, ego, we don't know how much of a role it played. We do know that there are a lot of big personalities on this case. There have been a lot of turnover in terms of the detectives investigating the, leads, the lead detectives have pretty much remained the same. The cold the case squad uh, picked it up from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office uh, after the initial investigative squad took it on. And uh, in Boca Raton, the same detective and his team have been working this case for 12 years. And uh, in d- her deposition, the, uh, Nancy Bocchio's sister said that she talks with that detective uh, every few months, and he always tells her, nothing new, nothing new. So, um, as far as we know, there, there is still nothing new. 12 years later,
2: police received hundreds of leads followed up on all of them. About a week after Nancy and Joey's murder, detectives received a report that Nancy's credit cards and cell phone had been found in an African-American neighborhood in Miami by two homeless men. Miami is about 50 miles South of Boca. One of the men's name was David Goodman, and he had Nancy Bochicchio's credit cards. He was arrested by Miami authorities on a warrant for a stolen car and then later questioned in the Boca murders. The other man was Charles Jackson. He was located by Boca police and questioned in Miami. He told detectives that he found Nancy's cell phone in the area of 1500 Northeast First Avenue in Miami, Goodman cooperated with police and also provided
1: information for investigative follow-up. Boca detectives searched and canvassed the area identified by Charles Jackson and talked to several people in that area. They also passed out flyers, reviewed local surveillance videos, and followed up on more leads, but they hit a dead end. Goodman and Jackson were ruled out as suspects in the murders. And many other avenues police explored wound up going nowhere.
0: Well, we know there have been literally thousands of, of tips and leads, according to police, from those agencies. They opened up a, a special tip line when the case was really hot, right at the beginning, when they were when they were uh, trying to generate the most public interest and involvement. They were getting call, constant calls, uh, and, and they ran down hundreds of potentially valid leads uh, in just in that early period. It led them to arrest a handful of homeless men who had actually found uh, two homeless men who had actually found uh, one of the victims' phones in uh, one of the murder victims' phones in uh, Miami-Dade County, which is about uh, 45 minutes to an hour south, depending on traffic, of the mall. It led them to out of state, where some of uh, Nancy uh credit cards were and Randy uh Nancy Bocicchio's credit cards were being used. It led them to down numerous peaks and valleys, but none of them uh, resulted in an arrest. Interestingly, the reward for the Bochicchio's killer or killers uh, was the largest ever offered in Florida history at the time. I believe it still is uh, the largest reward on offer from the state, from the county crime stoppers. And so they've run down, they, they've had thousands of lead calls in, uh, and we know because they publicly stated that they've run down at least hundreds of them. And, and they've pursued uh leads at uh pawn shops where uh they believe uh Randy Gornberg's son who they said had a drug problem at the time was uh pawning uh high-end jewelry right around the time possibly on of his mother's murder uh they pers- and they, they were never able to get that that uh, footage from the pawn shop where they believe he may have visited because it was wiped uh after a few hours They've gone to rehab facilities. They've sought subpoenas. They've gotten prosecutors from uh, California involved in trying to get a hold of someone and, and get DNA from someone who they, they were told by uh, friends of Gorenberg's son that some sort of knowledge or involvement. And so there were all these leads that became dead ends. Um, and, and really, the, the paper trail cuts off pretty early in this investigation because police, uh, for the last Ten years have used a, uh, a piece of Florida uh, public records law that allows them to cite an ongoing investigation as reason to not release any records about those investigations, and so they are still using that. Um, Twelve years later, they're still using that that uh, that piece of the public records law, and an otherwise very broad public records law, to sort of keep the press from, from uh, knowing. Uh, what other leads they pursued more recently, but the ones we've covered today are are the ones that uh, are the ones that we know about publicly as of right
2: now. Police were desperate for a break. They hoped to generate more tips and leads, so they worked hard to promote the case on local and national television. America's Most Wanted covered the murders three times between December 2007 and February 2008. For one episode, the show commissioned forensic artist, John McMahon, to enhance the original sketch provided by Jane Doe. Jane Doe worked with McMahon on the new sketch, and Jane felt that this new sketch represented the abductor much better than the first one. So police released the new sketch to the media, but it didn't lead to an arrest.
1: Detectives continued their efforts and started looking into other cases that might be related to the murders and Jane Doe's abduction. One in particular stuck out to them. It happened in August 2007. Shortly after midnight, a woman told police that a man pulled a gun on her when she unlocked her vehicle on the second floor of a parking garage at Meisner Park, another upscale Boca Mall. The man told her to get in her vehicle, but she flat out refused and threw $200 at him and told him to go away. Police officers tried to get the woman to talk with them and to file a report, but she refused. It wasn't until after the Bochicchio murders that she finally agreed. The South Florida Sun-Sentinel newspaper received a copy of the police report, but the woman's age, the make of her vehicle, and the methods used by the robber and other details were redacted. A detailed summary of the robbery was not released.
2: Police found another case of interest. On March 23rd, 2006, exactly one year before Randy Gorenberg's murder, 52-year-old Cynthia Moffitt was robbed and shot to death outside her place of employment, the Forest Oaks Golf Club in Lake Worth, Florida. This is about 22 miles north of the Boca Town Center Mall. The crime occurred between 5 and 6 p.m. The killer left the pro shop with wrapped coins and several rolls of coins were found on the ground near the victim's body. Cynthia lived in Boca Raton and was the same age as Randy Gorenberg. But after a prolonged look into this case, police said that Cynthia's case was not related to the other Boca cases.
1: After the Boca murders failed to be solved, the public criticized local law enforcement when they found out that the Boca police kept quiet on Jane Doe's abduction and robbery. There were also allegations that the various agencies handling the cases didn't work well together and perhaps weren't used to these kind of violent crimes.
2: In 2011, four years after Randy Gorenberg's murder, police had a break in the case after they received a tip that a Miami-Dade gang member may have killed her. Michael Barrera was part of the Salvadorian gang MS-13, a jailhouse informant overheard members taking responsibility for the Gornberg killing and pointed the finger at Barrera as the hitman. At the time Barrera was a fugitive and wanted for armed bank robbery and attempted murder of a law enforcement officer. Barrera drove a white Chrysler 300 sedan. Police said that this was the exact same model as the car seen following Randy's SUV at Home Depot. All of this new information had police thinking that the gang killed Randy, although they had no idea why she would have been targeted. But police couldn't find any evidence linking Barrera to the murder, and it's unclear if he was ever captured by police or remains a fugitive today.
1: After Dancy and Joey were killed, several things happened outside the murder investigation. 20 friends and family still celebrated Joey's 8th birthday on December 15, 2007 and Timothy McCurdy dressed up as Santa Claus in Joey's honor. Joey's school carried on with the annual holiday concert without her. About 400 students and their families paused for a moment of silence for Joey and Nancy. Joey's second grade class planted a tree in her memory on the grounds of the Catholic school. As they did so, the children sang Joey's favorite song, This Little Light of Mine. Unfortunately,
2: there has never been an arrest in any of these Boca murder cases that we've talked about. The killer or killers have evaded police for what more going on 12, 13 years now as a crime reporter, you would think that the role of Kevin Deutsch would be to report the details of the cases he covers and then move on to the next case. But that moving on has been very difficult for him to do when it comes to the Boca Mall murders. And years later, Kevin still finds himself digging into the case, searching for answers. People connected to this case, including Kevin himself, have found themselves dreaming about this case, perhaps even having nightmares about it. That's probably a better way to describe it.
0: I'm also working on a book about the case and hope, my ultimate hope is, is to help bring closure to the Boquikios and the Gorenbergs and to the victims who survived and were traumatized. Uh, these are cases where the, the victim's families talk about being tortured by nightmares uh, in, which the, in which the killer uh, essentially appears in their dreams. I, I, too, personally, as a reporter, have been haunted by it and just feel that there's someone out there who knows who this man or men are, who is responsible for some or all of these crimes. And uh, until that person or persons are, pro- are brought to justice, I don't think uh, the people who have been impacted this case can, can, can be easy.
1: You heard Kevin mention that he's in the process of writing a book about the Bocamal murders. It's a slow process, and he's waiting for the next bits of information to come in to include in the book. In the meantime, it's hard to not think these cases are related based on the commonalities. Kevin reviewed all of those clues that seemed to link the cases. At the time, myself and, and
0: Michael Forgia, my reporting partner at The Post at the time, we had to really dig and and, and, and just, you, you know, do everything we could to get to extract this information. And only now, 12 years later, is some of this information coming out in some of the new documents that I was able to obtain uh, from court files and public records requests. So what we now know is that the killer of the Vokikios, we believe, because we believe that the police believe, that that man or man is the same person responsible for at least two of the other, at least one of the other attacks and possibly two other attacks. It's convoluted. There are multiple victims, but we have linked at least two of these crimes to each other. And it's possible that all the murders and robberies are linked. But the two that have definitively been linked, the killer used uh, attack in both cases, in the Bochito case, as well as another case, uh, used zip ties to bound uh, at least some of the victims and used these blacked out goggles to blind them. One surviving victim uh, said, in another incident at the mall, said that he placed these goggles over her eyes, bound her at the wrist and ankles, just as he did uh, Nancy Bochicchio, as she was found. Um, he also, what we now know as well from these recent public records that, I, that we obtained and are published on Bronx Justice News, he wore a gun holster. Uh, he wore a gun holster as well as driving gloves uh, he wore black sunglasses, uh, police believe, based on all the court records and all the testimony uh, in various lawsuits related to the case involving them all, as well as testimony of detectives, that this man was very relaxed, calm, had had planned this out quite well. And so while there were elements of, of of sort of him acting on the fly, at the it, it, it seems there are also indications that he, he was extremely well prepared. He bought something that police came to call his kidnap kit, which included handcuffs, zip ties, the goggles, other binding materials. And so um, uh, he came fully prepared and he moved without attracting any attention in a mall parking lot that is populated by thousands of drivers, luxury cars, uh, very wealthy people, uh, a parking lot that at the time of these abductions and murders had no surveillance cameras in the parking lot. And that those were only installed later. So it was kind of remarkable that for all the money and prestige in Boca Raton, there was very little protection for the people who shopped there. And and ultimately that played a huge role because the Boquitos, uh, killer as well as the killers of, of Randy Gornberg and the abductors of three
1: other uh, two other victims as well as a robbery victim have, have never been found to this day. Maybe it's just coincidental, but you also had multiple victims driving very similar vehicles and some of them having ties to New York. These are just some of the things about this case that tend to jump out. And Nancy drove a, a black SUV
0: Uh, Randy Korenberg, who had been killed on March 23rd uh, after being abducted from the mall, uh, from from just outside the mall, just a couple months before the August abductions of two of a mother and son, and shortly before the December murders of the Bokikios, all in that that 12-month span in 2007, or nine-month span in 2007. They all drove upscale as dark SUVs. The, the, uh, the boquikios were in their black upscale, high-end black SUV. Randy Gorenberg drove a new Mercedes-Benz late model SUV that she and her husband, Stuart, had just purchased. And the young mother and her two-year-old son also drove a high-end SUV. All were parked in various locations in the mall parking lot, uh, at, at, on the town center property all parking locations where there were no security cameras. And so it seems that the killer may have had some awareness of that security situation. Either that or he got very lucky. And we might be talking about one killer. We might be talking about multiple killers and robbers because, as I said, these cases haven't been solved and, and they have not neither been definitively linked nor ruled out as being connected to the same person or persons. Um, there was also an August 10th robbery at nearby Meisner Park, which also inv- involved a high-end dark luxury SUV, which may or may not be linked to the other cases. And so these cases are shrouded in mystery, but they all involve high-end SUVs. They all involve women shopping either alone or with young children. And so these are, these are commonalities that detectives have been unable to ignore, but also been unable to tie into a uh, theory that leads them to the killer or killers. My personal theory is that there is too many commonalities to ignore between the Gorenberg murders, the, Bo- the Gorenberg murder, the Bokikio murders, the August 7th ritualistic carjacking and kidnapping, and the Meisner Park robbery, which occurred just three days after the August 7th mother-son kidnapping. So you have these cases involving... Five victims, actually six if you include the minor Park case. You have six victims, four of which we know were attacked by the same man. We believe you have the other minor Park case, which sounds an awful lot like his his MO. My feeling is the commonalities are too powerful to ignore. There is also not enough forensic evidence for us to definitively say it's the same person. It's so. so my my feeling is that these. That whether or not it's the same man was, or men responsible, I do believe that the killer or killers knew about the others' work. That they were uh, building on the earlier the, the Gorenberg killing. Whoever ca- carried out the August abductions and the December murders would have known about the, the March twenty third murder of Randy Gorenberg and what happened to her outside the mall and how she was abducted. So I believe that they're either they're, they're either linked and the same people carried it out one one or more men, or the person or persons who carried out the later attacks knew of the first attack and were sort of building a copycat, if you will, uh, version of, of that crime and, and using ritualistic tools to build on the earlier killer's work. Or it could be the same killer or killers. Uh, I should also note that there was a sketch, uh, which is to this day the, only, the, the key sketch in this case, of a, a man wearing a sort of beach hat. A floppy beach hat, dark sunglasses, with a ponytail, and this is based on the August seventh uh, survivors sketch. The man who ritualistically kidnapped her and her son with the goggles, zip ties, and uh, plastic handcuffs as well, wearing a holster and dark driving gloves and glasses. She gave a, uh, a uh, she sat down with a sketch artist, and that sketch remains the the most crucial piece. Uh, I think for the public to look at in this case, it's the best idea we have of what these killer killers might look like because of the absence of footage. Uh, we have nothing to uh, surveillance footage from the mall. We have nothing to compare that with, uh, but it is the image that law enforcement continues to circulate. And one of our best chances at, at solving this case,
2: the reward for the arrest and conviction of the killer is up to $400,000 at this point. You have to remember the area of the country that we're talking about, Boca Raton, Florida, there is plenty of money. It's a a very wealthy community. And these are extremely horrific crimes. You know, the residents of Boca Raton want to see these crimes solved. They don't want the perpetrators out roaming their streets. Anyone with information about the Boca Raton mall murders is encouraged to call the Boca Raton police at 561 338 1344. Or you can call Crime Stoppers at 1 800 458 8477.
1: Special thanks goes out to Kevin Deutsch for joining us in this episode. You can find his books on Amazon and also visit his Facebook page. The Boca Mall Murders Investigation. Thanks also goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode.
2: For you Patreon members, we will put up the entire Kevin Deutsch interview on our Patreon feed sometime in the near future. So make sure you look out for that. As always, if you like the show and you haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out give us a five-star rating. You can type in a review if you want. All that goes a long way. And continue to tell your true crime friends
1: about the show. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans.
2: So that's it. More for the case of the Boca Raton mall murders, it's an interesting case when you factor in the murders of the Boquicios and then all these other cases that have such strong similarities, the SUVs, some were made to go to ATMs. It's hard to think that at least some of these are not related. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. And then you have all the weird things that he made them do, zip tying their their necks to the seat, putting on these weird goggles, uh, just seems the interesting in, in some of his, his MO or their MO, if it happens to be two different people, that they'd be so similar. But just really bizarre clues in these cases.
2: Well, and I'm glad you brought up the goggles because I forgot to mention that. To me, that is so specific, right? Fashioning goggles for your victims to essentially act as a blindfold. That's a very, very specific clue in this case. And I think it's also why police put out description, pictures, whatever they put out of similar goggles asking the public for help. That's got to be one of the key things that kind of makes this case or these cases stand out. But that's it. That's it for another episode of Criminology. But Morph and I will be back with you next Saturday night with an all-new episode. So until then, this is Mike Ferguson. And Morph. And we'll talk to you then. Take care,
1: everyone.